Okay. Good morning, good morning. If you're a student, you're dismissed to go with Miss Ivy and I think Mr. Nick and Mr. Larry. So, uh, uh, look at all the, golly, sucker Bill. Half the church fled. Um, Y'all would think I was preaching on tithing or drinking, but anyway, anyway, uh, um, thank y'all for being here today. I greet you in the name of my Savior. I'm glad, very glad you're with us, and I'm glad for the sunshine too. Um, Truly I am. Um, If you read the Bible much at all, especially the Old Testament one of the things that you notice all the time is the repeated references by the authors to the topography of Palestine. The the writers of the Bible, especially David in the Psalms, but you see it throughout uh, the Old Testament uh, references to the, the lily of the, va- the valleys and the rivers and the brooks and the mountains and the the uh, um, like the, 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 the Jesus God being our rock and our refuge and and our fortress and these in the cliffs you just see all these references throughout the Old Testament to the significance of how Palestine was created by God. And I don't believe that it was by accident. I think that God literally, I think he handcrafted every square inch of this universe. But I do think that there's something very unique about Palestine and its geography, its topography, how it's laid out and designed. And I think there are messages for us, things that God wants us to see uh, and learn from. Uh, you go back and you, as you read your Bible, you'll start seeing these things jump jump out at you. And they, there's, there's, there's messages uh, behind them, if you, if you, will, if you have eyes to see. Um, I had the privilege... Oh my gosh, Shirley, when did I go, when did Randy and I go to the, to Israel? 2005. My daughter and I had the privilege of uh going to Israel together on a father-daughter trip and uh when I look back on my 59 years there's only two or three events in my 12 days that we got to be more meaningful or as meaningful as that those 12 days that we got to be there. And um, it was just a deal. It was a deal to get to be with my daughter. It was a deal to be in the Holy Land. You know, uh, it was just a deal. The whole thing was just so meaningful. And one of the blessings that God gave me in that deal was we had a guide who met us at the airport and traveled with us literally until he put us back on the airplane uh, uh, in Tel Aviv when we left. And uh, he was a retired Israeli army general. And he had retired years earlier and got bored. And he, in college, he had been a history 
major and loved biblical, in particular, Old Testament history. And so he, when he retired from the military, he became a tour guide. And uh, we spent 10 days with him, uh, almost. We spent some time in Egypt. But uh, anyway, we, we spent all this time with him, and he just told us story after story after story about Israel and, and, and its history, and just, it was incredible. If you ever get a chance to do it, um, it is a, it's a deal breaker, I'm telling you. But one of the things that he said that I have never forgotten, now you think about Israel, you think about the Middle East, you think about the, the land of Palestine, that's where that is, and uh, you think about this statement. He said, we were driving down the road one day in a big old bus, and he, and he looked around and he said, do you know what politically, militarily, is the greatest fear and threat to the nation of Israel? You know, what they fear more than anything else in the nation of Israel. It was just like y'all, dead silence on the bus. There were 40 of us, I guess. And uh, dead silence. And he said that an enemy nation would do something to the waters of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee. Of all the threats that the people of Israel fear the most, it's not a nuclear explosion. While that would be horrific, it's not invasion. It's not. He went through all these things that you would think and he said, of all the threats that anyone could do to us that would harm us in a significant way, the greatest threat is that someone would do something to harm the waters of the Jordan River and the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Clearly, I've never forgotten that. And uh, I've thought about that countless times about those waters. Uh, but, but, and he went on to say that if it, if it were not for those waters that flow down the Jordan River and empty into the Sea of Galilee and then on down into the Jordan River Valley, uh, Israel and Palestine would be a wasteland. That no one could live there. And... Um, so I want you to be thinking about that. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the topography just so get, get us all on the same page. Um, all of that water, when you think about the, the waters of the, of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee and down through the Jordan River, down through the Jordan River Valley that empty into the Dead Sea, all of that water comes from the same place, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 200 miles north of Israel. Bless you. About 200 miles north of Israel, and it's a pretty high, there's snow on, the, it's such a high mountain that there's snow on Mount, Her Mount Hermon year-round. And uh, as that snow melts, it trickles down, comes down, and it travels 200 miles, and at some point it changes from being little creeks and streams and you know, stuff, and it turns into a river, and they call the river the Jordan River. And it travels 200 miles, and it empties into the Sea of Galilee. And then the Sea of Galilee holds it for a while, and then 
uh, at a certain point, the level of it rises up so high that it then overflows back into what they call the Jordan River, and it travels, uh, it's actually 87.7, but 90 miles. It travels 90 miles from the Sea of Galilee down through the Jordan River uh, uh, and empties into the Dead Sea. Uh, and you can see it on a map, but you can also see it literally if you're there. Um, this is a huge valley that the Jordan River tra uh, travels through, like a big trough. And on both sides of the trough, on both sides of this valley for 200 miles, on both sides of the Sea of Galilee, and then on both sides of the Jordan River Valley for another 90 miles, everything is green and luscious and abundant. It's unbelievable. And then you get to a point far enough away on both sides that it turns desert. But when that water travels that 90 miles and dumps into the Dead Sea, everything changes. Everything's green, 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 luscious, 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 abundance, abundance, farms, these uh, terracing farms are everywhere producing this unbelievable uh, uh, the harvest of, and crops and everything. And then you get to the Dead Sea and it's dead. There's nothing around the Dead Sea but dirt, mud, uh, nothing. Nothing grows or lives in the Dead Sea. Nothing. It, number one, it's the lowest point on the earth, just so you know that. It's the lowest point in the whole earth. It's the closest. I won't get into that, but anyway, it's the lowest point on the earth. Uh, and nothing grows or lives in the Dead Sea. Nothing grows or lives for miles around the Dead Sea. The only thing they've got are minerals, mud, and toxins. Now, what there is surrounding the Dead Sea are all these big, huge, beautiful resort, resorts that all these uh, wealthy women go to because they somehow they, they lay out there in all this, they look like big beach whales, um, but they lay out there in, the, in this mud and put all this um, uh, stuff, up, this mud on all of them, and it, supposedly it makes them pretty, you know, the jury's out on the pretty part, but anyway, they, uh, they cover themselves in this, in this toxic mud and it's supposed to make your skin pretty or something. But anyway, um, I, I don't know about that part. I've seen them, but I don't, I don't know about that part. But uh, anyway, um, wonder why, wonder why the water flows out of the top of Mount Hermon as that snow melts, and it immediately turns things green. Harvest, abundance, thriving, flourishing, green. Green, 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 green for 200 miles. Dumps into the Sea of Galilee. Green, 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 green around the Sea of Galilee for miles. Dumps into the Jordan River Valley, into the Jordan River again for 90 miles. Green, 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 green. Dumps into the, sea of Gal uh, dumps into the Dead Sea. Death. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Nothing grows in or around the Dead Sea, for miles around it. What's the wonder why? What happens to that water that transforms it from a source of abundant life to a source of abundant death? 
Anybody have any ideas? It's an incredible principle. Yes, but the salt is brought with the water. The salt's been in that water the whole time. When the water goes into the Dead Sea, it stops. It has no outflow. There's nowhere for the water to go. It's the lowest point on the earth. So it's sort of like the drain of the earth. And all that toxic, poisonous death flows into this sea, the Dead Sea, and it stays there. It does not, it has no place to go. It is only a place that receives. It's only a place that takes. It's only a place that keeps. Versus the Sea of Galilee that is unbelievably luscious and green and thriving. It's receiving, but every ounce that it receives, it channels on by. It never keeps. It always keeps it going. Now, unless you have a brain the size of a very small English pea, Don't miss that. Places that are receiving and passing on and places experience life and places that just receive, just get. They experience ultimately death. I want you to keep that in mind as we read this story together, okay? Let me read this passage to you. Sorry that it's a little long. I, I didn't write it, so uh, you can take it up with the, with the author. Um, it's in Luke chapter 14, and I'm going to read 24 verses. It's not the whole chapter, but it's, a, it's, a, it's one story. This all took place in the home of a very, the Bible says, a very prominent, that's a, that's a phrase that really communicates wealth. Standing, prestige, position, power. This the guy that was hosting this party was a was a prominent person. Was a very prominent person, very wealthy person. He probably it doesn't say this, but it's all the Bible scholars would agree that I read. He this party probably took place in a very large villa. On the, on the cliffs of the uh, uh, Jordan River Valley overlooking the Jordan River. That's where the, that's where the wealthiest people in Jesus' day lived. They built these huge villas on the cliffs overlooking the Jordan River. So it's not by accident that Jesus is having this conversation with this man and his Buddies, and literally, they could look out the window or step out on the terrace of this extravagant villa and see the Jordan River flowing. There, this is all, there's nothing here by accident. 
This is all very strategically planned by the Lord Jesus in my mind, in my beliefs. Okay, so you listen. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus ate in the home of a prominent Pharisee and was being closely watched. Don't miss that. It wasn't like they thought he was a snappy dresser or an extraordinarily good-looking man and they were just sort of gazing at him like, whoo, that, that's a good-looking dude over there. No, no, no. When it says that he was being closely watched, watching the death, it would be like the Fox News people closely watching the Democrats or CNN news people closely watching the Republicans. There's nothing good about their watching. They're not looking for, uh, oh, he did a good thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on my uh, 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 blog or my website so that everybody knows that he did a good thing. No, no, no. When it says that they were closely watching him, they were closely watching him to find fault, to find chinks in his armor, to find flaws, to find... Uh, uh, where he would say one thing, but you, but last week when you when you said something, it was exactly the opposite. They're looking for flaws and problems and weaknesses and mistakes. Okay, it's very important that we see that that word for closely watch means to inspect, to flaunt, to find flaw. That's what that word means. A man was there who suffered from dropsy. Dropsy, uh, it's still a real disease. I mean, it, we, people still don't get dropsy. Dropsy is a disease that you get when the, the, your, uh, your heart doesn't pump properly. Uh, and uh, because it doesn't pump properly, your, it affects in a very negative way your circulation and it makes your limbs swell to the point that when you move, it's very painful and when you try to walk, you, you stumble a lot. You fall a lot to the point that sometimes your legs become paralyzed. And uh, uh, so you, there's a lot of swelling. There's a lot of pain. You're, you, you have a very hard time breathing. So it's, you can't climb stairs. You can't walk up inclines. It's a, it's a very, especially in the Middle East, it would be very, uh, uh, it's not like Memphis where most everything's flat. Okay, it's everything's on an angle. And so it would be a very, very difficult disease. Uh, there was a man there who suffered from dropsy. And Jesus asked the religious leaders, is it allowed in the law to heal on the Sabbath? Very, you, we've seen this numerous times. It was a very popular debate among Jewish theologians in Jesus' day. They sat around the Bible says all day debating when the Bible, when, when, when God said that through Moses, don't do any work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? What does that literally mean? How much can I do and not break the Sabbath? And one of the, it, and that argument sort of progressed or digressed to the point that it became an argument of, can I do good? On the Sabbath? Am I able to do good to somebody? Can I stop and help somebody whose donkey has fallen down or had a flat tire or, uh, you know, took the, the, I take the newspaper, there's two or three old women that live around me. 
uh, on our little cove, and every morning when I go out, I get their newspapers, and I take them and lay them up by their front door. Is that work? Should I do that on the Sabbath? That literally, you might think, well, that's silly. <laughs> they didn't think it was silly, okay? Um, is it allowed in the law, Mosaic law, to heal on the Sabbath? And when they refused to answer, Jesus healed the man and sent him away. And then he said to them, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? You could turn around and say, you all work on the Sabbath. Don't get, don't get mad at me for helping this man on the Sabbath. Um, all of you work on the Sabbath. If your son or your cow falls in a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, no response by the religious leaders. Jesus noticed all the dinner guests trying to sit in seats of honor at the table. In this day, especially in big party settings among prominent people, you would have a table that was like a U. And the, the uh, uh, host, the main dude, would sit at the top of the U. If, if you turned the U upside down, he would sit at the top of the U, and then the most prominent people would sit on his right and his left. And then a little less prominent, a little. And so by the time you get to the two uh, ends of the upside down U, you're the low man on the totem pole. And so what would happen is, is when the, as the people are mingling around and coming, if you could get your robe on the seat you, that closer to the host, you you. That gave you significance. That gave you value. Like, ooh, wow, Anne's sitting up close to the top of the head of the table. Ooh, she must be important. And there were a lot of things that were going on among prominent, mover and shaker, wealthy, uh, prestigious type, especially men in this day. You can imagine there's a lot of wheeling and dealing. There's a lot of who's being seen, who, who are you sitting next to? What kind of, you know, will that create connections for me? Nothing's changed. In 2,000 years, nothing's changed. We, we go to certain bars because other people are there. We go to certain parties because other people are there. We go to certain conferences because other people. We, we're trying to make connections. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to make connections. Network is what we come up with new names for the stuff, but it's a, nothing, nothing's changed, okay? Um, okay. So it says, says, Jesus noticed that all the dinner guests were trying to sit in seats of honor at the table and said, when you're invited to a feast, don't sit in the seats of honor. Don't try to move up as close as you can to the, top, to the, to the nearest the host. What if someone more important than you is invited to the feast? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. And then you'll be ashamed, or really the word is humiliated, and have to take the lowest seat at the table. If you're asked to move because there's somebody more important 
Then all the seats have been taken, and the only seat possible is the last seat. If you're going to the Orpheum, it would be the seat on the, you know, at the, on the very, very tip top on the end where the columns are blocking. That would be the last seat, okay? So Jesus says, don't sit at the, in the most prominent seat, because what if somebody comes more important and the guest says, you need to move? Well, then you're going to wind up with the worst seat in the whole house. Uh, you'll, have to, you'll be ashamed to take the lowest. Have to take the lowest seat at the table. Rather take the lowest place at the table. And when your host sees you, he will say, "Friend, we have a better place for you." Then exalted before all the other guests, for he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then Jesus said, same group of people, to the host, to his host. When you throw a party, don't invite your friends, relatives, and neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that's all the reward you will get. Now, think about what's going on here. Jesus is literally speaking in front of a room full of people, all at a table, and Jesus says to the host, Jerry, don't in, when you throw a party like this, don't invite people like this. I mean, everybody in the room heard you. Jerry, don't invite the very people that are here. Now, Jesus has clearly been invited to the party, so he has a seat at the table. But quite probably, he took the last seat. He took the seat down at the very bottom of the U. And he says to the host, when you throw a party... Don't invite people that can benefit you. Invite people that they have nothing to offer you. The only thing they can do is say thank you. Because they have nothing to give. They have nothing to, to, to maneuver or, or, or use uh, to, to make them more appealing or attractive to you. They have nothing. My, you know, this, this of all the verses in the Bible... Uh, this verse right there, that verse right there, bothered my dad probably the most. It really bothered him when he read that. I got him reading his Bible every year. He read through the Bible every year with me. And um, um, he, uh, uh, it bothered him when he read that passage. He would tell me that. He would say, you know, I don't like that the Bible says that. And I said, well, Dad, sorry, you know. Um, but he, he, it bothered him because when he would throw a party, he would invite his friends, you know. Um, let's see. And they'll invite you back, and that's all the rewards you will get. Rather, invite the poor, the lame. Am I doing something wrong, Justin? No. Okay, okay. All right, if I am, sorry. Uh, rather, invite the poor, the lame, the cripple, and the blind. People that have nothing. People that can do nothing for you. People that cannot benefit you in the least. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who cannot repay you. Hearing this, a man at the table said, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Most scholars would say that this is a guest that got nervous. It got like, like y'all are. 
dead, dead silent. Everybody's like, everybody's, you know, kicking dust and shuffling and, you know, and, and uh, they're all nervous now that Jesus has done set this in front of the whole group right to the host. And so the man, a guest gets nervous and says, oh, it's going to be a wonderful day when we're all in the kingdom of God. We're all sitting at the table of the feast. You know, that's Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, bless you. Um, don't like you slipping up behind me. I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't that well. So, um, let's see here. The uh, hearing this, a man at the table said, "What blessing it'll be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God." And Jesus told this story: a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when all was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guest the banquet was ready. So, again, nothing has changed. Uh, 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 who can I pick on? Terry. Terry, you remember when your daughter got married? Do. Um, when your daughter got married, what a wonderful day that was. She was such a lovely bride. And... Remember about six months or four months earlier, I don't know when exactly it was, you sent out an invitation to everybody, we're going to have a wedding that's coming up. Don't uh, forget, mark your calendar, blah, blah, blah. And then you sent out something later on, hey, all right, the way, the, it's about time for the wedding. Uh, Y'all you, have to do that, so don't worry about that, John. You, you better start saving your shekels. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, now you send out that second or the real invitation to tell everybody it's time for the wedding, right? Y'all understand what I'm saying? That's exactly. The king sends out an initial invitation months, possibly years early, earlier, and says, I'm going to throw a banquet. And it's very important to me that you come, mark the date, mark your calendar. The time comes for the banquet, and the king sends out, not invitations like you would think, but a messenger and uh, to announce the, it's time for the banquet. Okay, so just so you see what's going on. Let's see here. When all was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said that I bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said I bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. I want to see how they work in the field. Please excuse me. Another one said I got married and I can't come. The servant told his master what they had said and his master was furious and said, go into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. There's a little play on words that, we're, that, that I don't want you to miss here, and it is that notice it's still inside the town. He says, go into the areas of the town where the poorest Jewish people live. That's what's being implied here. Go into the areas of town where they're poor, but they're like us. They're our people. And invite them to come. Okay? After this was done, the servant said, there's still more room. So his master said, now go into the country lanes and hedges and urge all to come to my house so that it will be full. For none of those that I invited first 
will participate in the banquet in my banquet. Like I said, there's a little play on words there and what what this king, this master is saying that what Jesus is saying through this through the words of this master is go and invite the poorest people that are like us, our people. But also go and invite people that are outside the city, outside our world, invite them as well. And what he's saying is, invite the Gentiles. Invite non-Jews. So it was a big statement that Jesus is saying there. Um, I just want to make us with points today. I want to, I want to challenge us with two simple things uh, today. And the first one is simply this. There, there's, a, there's so much that we could talk about in this story. But it just hit me like a, like a freight train when it says that these religious leaders were watching Jesus. And the phrase in the Greek New Testament is, they were watching Jesus with an evil eye. That's the, I don't know whether any of your translations would say that, but that's the phrase. They were watching Jesus with an evil eye. They were watching Jesus looking for fault, looking for flaws. They were hoping to catch him the way the media tries to catch Donald Trump. They're trying to catch him in saying something that's different than what he said earlier. And it's the same the other way around too, but you, you, you see what I'm saying there. They're looking for mistakes, for failures, for weaknesses. They're looking for things that they could, that they could catch about Jesus that they could then turn around and use against him. Things that they could use to accuse him, discredit him, harm him, prove him wrong, trip him up. Well, Larry, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you, Austin? What does that have to do with you, Jim? Alan? Larry? How do I see people? How do you see people? Do we see people with an evil eye? With an eye of skepticism? An eye of criticism? Do I see people with an eye of envy or jealousy? Do I see people with an eye of accusation? Or judgment? Do I see people and when I look at them, what runs through my, through my mind are all your past failures? Do I see people and do I look at people and watch people trying to find things that I could use against them later on? Luke chapter 11 says, this is Jesus' words, your eye is the lamp of your body. 
When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. I thought about King David. What an, what an amazing man. I would suggest to you that at least in the Old Testament, and if you threw out the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, you could even include the New Testament. You've got this range of people, and some of them are little molehills, and then some of them are little valleys, and then some are little higher hills, and then other hills, and then, you know, get... David's the mountain. David's... There is no one in the Old Testament, and I would suggest other than the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, there's no one in the Bible that is given... Number one, that's given such ink. By sheer amount of ink that, the, that, that God gave David, he's the man. He is the greatest child of God, follower of God, servant of God, favored one of God. You, you, could, you could argue in the Bible. There is no one that has more ink. What an amazing person. But you know, when you think about the life of David, David's life was filled with people who had evil eyes toward him. From his earliest childhood, his brothers, remember when, da, when his dad told him to go take supplies to his brothers who were fighting, and David came up there to, that guy, what's going on with that guy? And he starts asking them about, hey, what about Goliath? What about that guy? What's going on with that guy? First response of David's brothers is, what are you talking about? Why are you even here? You just take care of a few little old sheep out in the wilderness. Get on back to the... Who's taking care of those sheep? Have you left them defenseless? Their first response when they see their brother is basically, we see you as a little insignificant, unimportant pipsqueak. Why are you even here among us big, mean, tough, mighty men that are hiding behind rocks uh, <laughs> trying to get a hit from, from Goliath. But uh, you see my point. The next thing you see is Goliath. David walks out with his slingshot in front of Goliath. And the first thing Goliath does is says, Have they sent a Do they think I'm a dead dog? That they would send out such a puny little old no account, nothing to fight me. I mean, Goliath sees him with evil eyes. His brothers see him with evil eyes. And you go right through David's life. Um, uh, 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 King Saul was constantly looking for flaws and mistakes and failures in the life of David. David's wife, Michael, 
meaner than a two-headed snake. David's worshiping the Lord with all of his might. And he takes off his royal robes and his crown to show that he's no better than anybody else. And he's just a, a servant of the Most High God like everyone else. And his wife from the, from the balcony looks down and goes, What are you doing? Why would you humiliate yourself and appear like you're just a commoner? Michael was seeing David with an evil eye. Nabal. Remember the dude that David went to see if he would share with him some supplies after David had done so much good for him? And Nabal goes, why would I help somebody that's an ex-con? Why would I help somebody that's a fugitive running for his life? You, Hey, People, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I've heard that people have accused people. Uh, and I could go all his sons, his friends. Remember, David gets in the cave, and bless you, and King Saul is going to the bathroom, and they're all they're watching King Saul, and they're just hoping to goodness that David's going to take his knife and slit his throat. And dang it, David doesn't let him go. And what, rather than the men going, wow. Wow, what reference you give to, the, to somebody that's the anointed of God. You stupid idiot. You had, God gave you the chance to kill this guy. You, you, you fumbled the ball. You lost your chance. What an idiot. Again, even his closest friends. And I could go on and on. My point is this. David's life was filled with people that watched him with an evil eye. And if you read the Psalms, I'll bet 50% of the Psalms, David mentions the pain that he experiences because of people watching his life with an evil eye. Always accusing, always attacking, always slandering, hoping he would fail, reminding him of his failures, talking about his failures, talking about his mistakes and his weaknesses, and it, it devastated David's life. The question I have to ask myself is, Do I see people with an evil eye? Do I watch people often? And what I see are your inconsistencies, your weaknesses, your failures, your past mistakes. Am I looking for the chinks in your armor? Am I trying to discover that which I could use against you or that which I could then go and talk to other people about and lower you in their eyes? Do I see people with an evil eye? Or in contrast, you know, David, one of the things that made David David, David saw the good in people. Why did David not kill Saul? He saw good in Saul. David, Saul was a rat. By anybody's definition, Saul was a rat. A horrible rat. He needed killing. 
I will not kill him. That is the Lord's anointed. I will not do that. David saw. How many times did people come into David's life and the people around David said, all right now, he deserves to die. Let's kill him. He, needs, he deserves to And David said, do not touch him. That's not what, we're not about killing people. We're, that's not the business we're in. We're not in the business of destroying people. We're not in the business of throwing stones. We're not in the business of lowering people in other people's eyes. We're not in the business of slandering and accusing and fault finding and chink in the armor finding. We're not in, that's not who we are. That's not what we do. And the only reason David was like that is because David was like God. That's not, God is not by nature a fault finder. God by nature is not someone that slanders and gossips and finds error, that's looking for problems, looking for weaknesses. That, what, what does the Bible say? This is someone that cannot forget anything. By definition, God can't forget. But what does God say? Let me forgive your sins, and I will remember them no more. As the east is as far from the west, I will never remember your... That doesn't mean that God doesn't... God can't forget, but what it means is, when I look at you, what fills my mind are good things. Not your weaknesses or mistakes, your failures, your inconsistencies. That's not who I am. Do I see people with eyes of hope? Eyes of love? Eyes of faith? Eyes of mercy? When I see people, is my first reaction that I'm rooting for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, might be the most famous chapter in the Bible, says this. Love is patient and kind. Love is not envious or boastful or proud. Love is not rude or self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. It takes no pleasure in evil. That's evil that would fall on others, by the way. It, re it rejoices in the truth, and it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When God sees us, he sees the good in us. He sees what's possible. He sees what we were created to be. We see ourselves in the mirror. I stand in the mirror. I stand in front of the mirror as little as possible, to be quite honest with you. But I stand in front of the mirror, and I'm, I'm just being very transparent. Never is there a day that I, don't, that I look in the mirror and my mind doesn't run through all the big mistakes that I've made in my life. My regrets, my failures, the pain that I've caused people. 
That's what runs through. When I, when, when I see people or when I see myself, that's what fills my eye. I see myself with an evil eye. I see myself the way those religious leaders at that dinner saw Jesus. But that's not the way God sees us. Remember when, G- when God appears to Jacob? You know, Jacob, his name means deceiver, trickster. God appears to Jacob and says, Jacob, I'm changing your name. Your name doesn't reflect how I see you. Now, From now on, your name is Israel, one who I fight for. Isn't that lovely? You see yourself as Jacob, deceiver. But I see you as one that's so worthy that God himself will fight for you. Gideon, one of the most amazing statements in the Bible, Gideon is hiding down in a well. He's such a chicken, so such a scaredy cat that he is hiding down in a well and God appears to Gideon. And do you know, the, do you know how God introduces himself to Gideon? He says, hello, almighty man of courage. Isn't that lovely? Gideon's hiding down in a well, or it's a, it's a place that, that does with we. It's a, it's a uh, threshing floor. He's hiding, thank you. He's hiding down in a threshing floor, which is a hole in the ground. And God appears to him, and he says, hello. Almighty man of courage. Isn't that great? I could go on and on and on with examples where God appears to people and he speaks into their lives not that which is true at that moment, but that which can be. That which could be, that which should be, and that which God is committed to making be. Because that's how God sees you. That's how God sees me. He doesn't, God doesn't look at us with an evil eye. That's not who God is. He's not watching the politicians on TV hoping they'll fail. He's not watching your ex hoping they'll suffer like they've made you suffer. Or your people that have done business with you or have people that you bought, your house, bought their house or people that you've worked for or that have worked for you. God doesn't see us that way. So the question is, do I? Do I see people with an evil eye? To me, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, if I was going to say that the Bible's not inspired of God, I don't, if I was going to say the Bible's full of error, it's wrong, it's not true, it's not the Word of God, I don't believe that. Okay? But if I were to declare that I don't believe the Bible is true, Do you know the chapter that I would use? Hebrews 11. 
where the Apostle Paul writes down the name of everybody, or not everybody, but he writes down, he makes this long list of, of people that God is especially fond of and proud of. Have you ever read that list? What a bunch of losers. What a bunch of crumb bums. What a bunch of failures. What a bunch of hypocrites. What a bunch of sorry, sorry, inconsistent, fearful, flaky, quitters, jerks, and bums. And yet when God makes a list of people that he's especially proud of and fond of, that's the list that he comes up with. Why? Because that's how God sees them. He says, oh, Lot. Remember Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, everything bad about it? There's nothing good about Lot. But when God in the New Testament writes about Lot, you know what he calls him? Oh, righteous Lot. There was nothing righteous about Lot except in the eyes of God. And for all eternity, I'm thinking people will walk by and go, hey, righteous Lot. Why? Because that's the name God told me I got. So it must be a right, it must be a good name and an accurate name. I'm not suggesting, and we're going to end. Lord, I didn't mean to, sorry. I'm not suggesting that we need to be foolish. I'm not suggesting that we need to uh, ignore boundaries. I'm not suggesting that we need to live in denial. I'm I'm not suggesting that I don't need to be wise in how I see and relate to people. That's not my point. But we live in a world, folks, with such skepticism, such suspicion, such doubt. We are so quick to fill our minds with their mistakes, their weaknesses, their inconsistencies, their flaws. We store stuff up that we can use down the road if necessary, against them. We talk about one another and we're just luring people. I talk to Susan about you, Donna, or I talk to Donna about Susan, and I say these things that just lures you uh, in, the, in the eyes of the person that I'm talking to. It's so anti-God to see people with an evil eye. And I stand before you as someone that claims I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the redemption of God. I believe that God can restore people and transform people and change people and make bums into great people and scaredy cats into courageous people and liars into truth speakers and uh, uh, crooks into honest people. I declare that I believe That God can change people into bad people, into great people. I I, I tell you I believe that. But do I see you that way? 
I see you that way? And then do I talk about you that way and relate to you that way? Well, we didn't get to my second point. We'll do that another day. They saw Jesus with an evil eye. Jesus never sees people with an evil eye. Who do I choose to see like? Guys, you want to come up? Since y'all are on the front row, you got to earn your keep. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. My second point was the point that had to do with that Jordan River deal. So y'all have to come back another time. And if you're sitting there going, "What did the Jordan River have to do with that?" It didn't have anything to do with that point. It's a second point, but we'll do that another day. Okay? Yeah. No. Be like one of these soaps where it gives you a little teaser at the end for the next show. So, uh, anyway, um, we gather together each week. And one of the reasons we gather is out of our realization that God sees us differently now. Because of the blood of Jesus. He sees us that once were unrighteous as now righteous. He sees us as those that were alienated from God as now adopted into the family of God. He sees us as those who once had no future. Now with an indescribable future and hope. We come and gather and declare, that's me. That's what happened to me. I am the beneficiary of that. We eat bread and we drink wine just to declare one more time that I once was lost and now I'm found. I was once lost and now I'm found. I once was not a child of God, and now I am. I once bore on my shoulders every sin that I ever have committed or ever will. Now somebody else bears that. That's why we eat bread and drink wine. To declare, that's me. If that's your testimony. I didn't ask if you were a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic or... Who shot John? I didn't ask you that. I asked you if it's your testimony that Jesus has changed your life and is now in your life. Then you come and you eat.